read two quotes, um, two, two paragraphs from different books. For in your sight no man is free from sin, and not even a child who has lived only one day on earth. It can hardly be right for a child, even at that age, to cry for everything, including things which would harm him, to work himself into a tantrum against people older than himself and not required to obey him, and to try his best to strike and hurt others who know better than he does. That sounds like all of our brothers, doesn't it, by the way? And then this is a paragraph from another book. What varieties has man found out in buildings, in attires, husbandry, navigation, sculpture and painting? What thousands of medicines for the health, of eloquent phrases to delight, of verses for pleasure, of musical inventions and instruments? How excellent are the inventions of geography, arithmetic, astrology and the rest. How large is the capacity of man if we should dwell upon particulars. Two paragraphs, two different books. The first paragraph describes a day-old child as throwing a tantrum in rebellion. The second paragraph from another book describes man as a great inventor, as one who has such beauty and inventions and capacity. So are these two paragraphs at odds with one another? Would it surprise you to learn that the first paragraph came from Augustine and the second paragraph came from Augustine? The first from Augustine's Confessions and the second from Augustine's City of God. Because both of these paragraphs are true. One speaks to man as fallen which we'll come to in Genesis 3, the other speaks of man created in the image of God. And even though on the other side of the fall that image has been marred, it has not been eradicated. There is almost nothing too low or base that you could say about fallen man. But there's nothing too grand or lofty that you can say about man made in the image of God. Both are true. And we see from Genesis 1, these two truths, essential truths. One, we are not God. Contrary to what you read in the press, we are not God. But secondly, unlike every other creature and created thing, we bear the image of God. And if we could understand both these things, every man and woman, boy and girl, that you are not a God, that you do not have the right of ultimate self-determination for your life, that you do not have the ability to create for yourself your own reality, that the entire universe doesn't centre around you. In other words, you are not God. That may be news to some of you, but that's the truth. But at the same time, at the same time, unlike every other created thing, you are made in the image of God. That's glorious. 
That's absolutely breathtakingly glorious. So we'll pick up our reading. We'll just read five verses today from Genesis 1, 26 to 31. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heaven and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And may the Lord bless this reading of his holy word. The Bible presents Adam and Eve. Here we have male and female. And we'll get their names, Adam and Eve, in subsequent chapters. The Bible presents them as historical figures, the first people on the planet from which all other peoples are descended. There is a seamless strand of history from Adam in Genesis 2 to Abraham in Genesis 12. So we cannot, as some people would suggest, set aside Genesis 1 through 11, that that is prehistory, that it's not historically accurate, sorry, not historically accurate. The real history starts in chapter 12 with Abraham. That's what some people would say. That doesn't work because among other reasons we have a deliberate and explicit connection from the descendants of Adam through to Terah then to Abraham. So these chapters are no less historically true than the chapters that follow from Genesis 12 through the rest of the Bible. Moses deliberately connects Abraham with the history that comes before him, all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. In the Bible there is a genealogy, 1 Chronicles 1, there is a genealogy in Luke 3. Both treat Adam as historical. Paul believed in the historical Adam, and he explains in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 the significance of sin in the first Adam and how Jesus Christ is the second Adam who came to obey when the first Adam was disobedient. So all peoples are descended from this couple, Adam and Eve. The Bible presents a historical Adam. Paul's doctrine of original sin and guilt does not hold together without it. Without a historical Adam, Paul's doctrine of the second Adam does not hold together. So without Adam and Eve, from whom all peoples come, we do not have a firm ontological basis for saying, wherever you come from, whatever your skin colour, 
whatever your first language may be, we all ultimately have the same parents and are the same type of person. Human beings everywhere are made in the image of God. And the language of image and likeness occurs in three places in Genesis. We just read about it in verse 26, 27 and 28. In Genesis 5, verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. The language of likeness. Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So these three turning points in the early chapters of Genesis, chapter 1 at creation, chapter 5 after sin had entered the world, and we've seen its devastating consequences with Cain and Abel. And then after the flood in chapter 9, we have a reaffirmation of man created in the image and the likeness of God. And notice that subsequent to each of these demarcations, there is language about being blessed, that they might be fruitful. The language image comes from the Hebrew word to sell them. Likeness is the Hebrew word demut. And earlier in the interpretation of these verses, back to the church fathers, many of them held that image and likeness were two different things. The reformers correctly argued that they refer to the same thing. In chapter 1, verse 26, it doesn't say, in our image and our likeness, but rather let us make man in our image after our likeness, after our likeness. So likeness is another way of saying image. And the fact that we have likeness in chapter 5 and image in chapter 9 shows the words are used interchangeably. And notice too that image isn't eradicated fully by the fall. We know that because of what we've just read in Genesis 9, that after the flood, God is still making commands and provisions based on the image of God in us. So though we, like temples, have become polluted and defiled, we are nevertheless still made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. James 3 verse 9, with it we bless our God and our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness or image of God. There is a lot you can say about the image of God. You can have weeks of theological lectures on the concept of the image of God. I love gazing and studying it because it gives you some understanding of how great things we're dealing with. But I want us to spend time looking at what is in front of us in Genesis. But let me just make a couple of comments, one historically and one theologically. Historically, theologians have highlighted one or the other of two aspects of the image of God. In earlier generations, so probably the first Christians well through to the Reformation, into the 19th century, Theologians emphasise the structural aspect of the image of God. That is that the image of God tells us about who we are. So to be made in the image of God 
theologians said, was to be marked with intelligence or an appreciation for beauty or nationality or to be a moral being with a capacity for worship. But more recently, in the last hundred years, there's been a shift away from the structural understanding of the image of God to a functional one that looks at the image of God as referring not so much to the, our sort of apparatus as human beings, but rather our roles and responsibilities. And I think we go too far in leaving behind the structural elements. But I do think it is the case, you can make a good argument from the text of Genesis for the functional elements of the image of God. It is true the Bible does not seem as interested in describing the image of God in as much as it wants to describe how you ought to live by virtue of being in the image of God. So theologians have moved away from locating the image of God in your spirit or soul or some faculty of intellect or memory or language and have come to see the image as suggesting relationship, responsibility, or some people say covenant and commission. I don't think it has to be one or the other, but as you'll see in the moment, I think you can make a better case for this functional aspect of the image of God. That was a little brief history, quick word theologically. There are a couple of shifts in the way that the image of God is talked about in the New Testament. One shift in the New Testament is that the focus with the image is now on Christ, Christ the man displays the image of God. 2 Corinthians 3, 4 and 5, Colossians 1 and 3, highlight that Christ is the image of the invisible God. The other shift in the New Testament is less about the image of God as our creational possession, but more about the image of God as our eschatological goal. There is less in the New Testament about the image of God as something we possess, and more about it as being our aim and our goal. Romans 8 verse 29, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So image is something that God is renewing in us, something that we're moving toward as Christians. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So the image has been renewed in us so that we might become degree by degree more like Christ who is the image of invisible God. So to paraphrase the title of a recent book on the image of God, the image of God speaks to both dignity and destiny. Our dignity as human beings, what we have, but the New Testament shifts our attention to our destiny, to where we are going, what we are becoming, that God is working in us to be renewed in his image. Well, that's just a bit of a preamble, really, because I think it's important. It is, it is part of our dignity, but it's also our destiny. But let me highlight three things about what the image of God means in Genesis 1. Being made in the image of God means that man is a plurality. If you look at verse 26. Whereas in the other creation accounts, 
God speaks indirectly, impersonally, let there be light. Here he speaks personally and directly. Not let there be, but let us make. How we should understand the us? We rightly understand the us as referring to the plurality in God. That makes some people a little nervous. Is Moses giving us a full-blown doctrine of the Trinity in Genesis 1? You don't have to say that, but we shouldn't also assume that ancient people were too primitive to understand such a concept. We're not saying, we're not saying that they're ready to articulate a creed, but it wasn't beyond them or beyond Moses as the author to understand in some mysterious way that there is a plurality within one God. We should take this as a very big hint in Genesis 1 that God who alone created the heavens and the earth, is in some way to be fully revealed to us as plurality. Let us make man in our own image. But the point is not about God. The point is about man. So what do I mean? Well, look at verse 27. God created man. And the word, by the way, in Hebrew is ha-adam. Adam in his own image. In the image of God, he created ha Adam, male and female, he created them. The name Adam, or ha Adam, is the Hebrew word for man. In the image of God, he created them male and female. Mankind is ha Adam, but male is zaka, and female is nekwabah. So there are different words here. God created man thinking of man in a generic sense, not a biological male. God is using man as the totality for the human race. God created Ha-Adam, and in created there was a male Ha-Adam, and there was a female Ha-Adam. In other words, in man there is a plurality, just as in God there is a plurality. And we have no mention of sexual distinction in the animals, but when it comes to the creation of the man, God wants us to know that we are characterised and there is a distinction by sexual differentiation. There are two distinct ways to be a human being, a male and a female, and both are equally in the image of God. That was revolutionary for the ancient world, and boy is it revolutionary today. Equally in the image of God but distinct, wonderfully, gloriously distinct. There are two distinct ways of being a human being. Not 101, two. And we see very importantly from the beginning, just as John, just as God said, let us, so he makes ha-adam, male and female. That's the first thing that we are to celebrate. Secondly, we are divine representatives. Psalm 78, verse 69, he built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. And that's in that psalm, he built the sanctuary. He's speaking of the tab temple or the tabernacle, like the heights, like the earth. So there is a verse that says that God created the sanctuary like he created the earth. We looked at 
how he fashioned the tabernacle when we studied Exodus. Exodus makes a deliberate point to say that the fashioning of the tabernacle happened as Bezaleel and Oliab were empowered and filled by the Holy Spirit. So the point is, the creation of the tabernacle was shaped and fashioned by the brooding over of the Holy Spirit, just as in Genesis 1, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters in creation. That is striking, because in the first five books of the Bible, we don't often have language referring to the Holy Spirit. We also have, with the tabernacle, Moses inspected the work and stated several times that the work in the tabernacle was completed. He blessed it, consecrated it, and set it apart as holy. Just as God inspected his work of creation, it is finished, it is completed, he blessed it and consecrated it on the seventh day as holy. You can even make the case that the elements in the tabernacle were to hearken back to creation. That in the outer court, if you remember, you had an altar and a basin. Maybe representative of the land, the altar, the sea, the water. Inside was blue, blue and stars. Maybe a canopy surrounded by the heavens. The same word used for the menorah or the lights in the tabernacle is the same word to be used, let there be light. Man created in the image of God the tabernacle created in the heavenly pattern. And this is made more explicit in Hebrews that Moses shaped and fashioned according to the pattern he received on Mount Sinai. You see, both man and the tabernacle are earthly replicas modelled on a heavenly reality. Creation is a grand temple and the tabernacle was created as kind of a mini creation. So if creation is the grand temple, what do you do? Well, you put your image, your likeness in the temple. Now, of course, in the tabernacle, in the physical temple, God cannot be shaped or fashioned by human hands. So you have the Ark of the Covenant, which is symbolic of where God will dwell with his people. There is no statue, there is no icon, because God is invisible. But here is the way that God will make himself visible. He places an icon. And what is it? People. People. These words, image, likeness, are used in the ancient world. Two times it is used in the book of Genesis to describe man's existence as an image or a shadow. But ten times the same word is used to describe a physical image, like pictures or idols. So we are made as representatives in the image of God. Cannot, God can't be seen, but we can be seen. So he puts us, he puts man and woman to say, image of me. We are divine representatives. Man is a plurality. We are divine representatives. And thirdly, we are royal rulers. There are two fundamental exhortations for man made in the image of God. One is that we're to have dominion, subdue, rule, 
Psalm 8, 4 to 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? And that the son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. God has entrusted to man to be the overseer of his earthly kingdom. It is problematic that in some strains of modern thinking, man is only seen as a polluter. Of course, if this is God's creation that he has given to us, we want to maximise and we want to rule and subdue it in a way that honours God. But yet, in environmentalism, it is as if man is a contagion on the planet. And the planet is pristine. And man is here and all he does is spoil it. That is an unbiblical way to look at man's role. We are sub-creators. Yes, man may spill gazillions of gallons of oil and may take years and years to clean it up. But man in the image of God has also taken silicon, which is sand, and made microchips out of it. Man is not just someone on the planet who's here to ruin things, but someone on the planet to create things, who produces things, who is given dominion to subdue, to rule, to exercise stewardship over this creation. Then the other object is dominion and then multiplication, be fruitful, increase. Several times it is mentioned, not just here, but when the image language is repeated in Genesis they're considered blessings. This was a necessary work at the beginning of the world. Already in parts of the world today, Japan, Russia, Italy, many parts in Western Europe, the fertility rate is plummeting so quickly that countries are fearing what to do, how they will sustain their social services for older populations when they no longer have younger populations. In one country, the Eastern Orthodox Bishop was so eager to see people have more children, he personally promised to baptise all the children in the country that were born. I'm not ready to make that promise. But there is still a need. There's a book that Philip Jenkins wrote about Christian marriage around the world, that in the not-too-distant future the only people who will be reproducing themselves are by and large going to be religious people. God is a creator to create and make. So we're made in his image to reproduce and to create. There is a divine plan. Let us make man a divine pattern after our image and then a divine purpose. Let them be fruitful and multiply. As image bearers, doesn't, doesn't that lift your spirits a bit this morning? that you are an image bearer of God and we are entrusted as rulers and stewards of God's creation because we're rulers and stewards of the creation that God has made. We're to exercise proper authority, dominion and creativity. If someone, some, some people call it the creation mandate. If you ever hear that being said, this is what it is. It's mentioned several times that man is given dominion over plants and animals and created beings. Man is never given dominion over other men. 
He's never given dominion over others. Because they are fellow image bearers. It is because man is in this unique position as, as the crown of creation. Is that how you see yourself when you look in the mirror? The crown of creation. That he alone can exercise dominion as God's sub-ruler, sub-creator on the earth. But there is never an allowance that man might exercise dominion over another man. As so often we find in the history of the world, military conquest, enslavement. Dominion was not given so that we could rule in tyrannical ways over fellow image bearers. So, in closing, as we finish, what are the implications of being made in the image of God? We see the uniqueness of the human person in God's creation. This is subtle but important because the way that many people talk about the earth is profoundly geocentric. That is, the story of the earth is about the earth and humans are just creatures on the earth, but the story is about the earth. Or biocentric, that the story is the earth and the life. There are whales and penguins and duck-billed platypuses and dormice and all kinds of animals and humans are just another kind of animal. But Genesis has a theocentric view of the earth and its inhabitants, that we are made in the image of God. And the point is, the story isn't of earth and nature, a man as a part of it, but man is the crown of God's creation as a steward on the earth. Secondly, second application, we see the worth and dignity of all people. And it's good to affirm this biblically, brothers and sisters, because we live in a day where this is completely rejected. Life begins at conception. A person is a person no matter how small. Who said that? Dr. Seuss. A person is made in the image of God with inherent worth and dignity whose life ought to be protected. There is a difference between ending extraordinary measures for life and ending life itself. But all human life is made in the image of God. Every person in this room, every person has the same inherent worth and dignity as you do. We are all made in the image of God. It is not about race or colour. We hear so much about that, but it is not. It might be subtle ways in our hearts, class, education, age. But the Genesis understanding of the image of God... That is the proper foundation for human rights and value. We're so eager and quick to divide into sub-identities and we forget that we all share, we all share the same fundamental dignity and identity that we are children of Adam and Eve and we have common parents. We're born into the world with the same nature and if we are Christians, brothers and sisters, we are joined to the same Lord. So we see worth and dignity. And thirdly, we belong to God. We belong to God. The serpent will tell Adam and Eve that if they eat from the fruit, 
the day they eat of it, they will be like God. But they had forgotten that they already were like God. And the serpent continues to lie to you. That if you will do just whatever you want, if you just express yourself, if you find your own fulfilment, you will be like God. And you have forgotten that you already are like God. You're made in his image. His, you are his statue. You are his flag to 